Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. I am one of your hosts, Tanner. Before we get started, I just want to thank uh, everyone for the support for the show. It makes us both really happy to make something that you know people apparently want to listen to. Uh, like we've said, we really like interacting with people on social media. We like reading comments, reading feedback from you guys. For those uh, social medias, we can be reached uh, on Twitter at beyond underscore breakers. On Instagram, we are beyond the breakers podcast. We have an email you can reach us at. That's beyondthebreakerspod at gmail.com. And in addition to those, we do also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. If you'd like to support the show, if you think what we do is worth a few of your dollars, you can throw them at us on Patreon. The show it's, itself will always be ad-free. We don't want to read ads. We know that you don't want to listen to ads during your podcast. So we really don't want to do that. Money from the Patreon just goes back into making the show, pays for things like... Uh, web hosting costs, research materials uh, when those are needed. It just it helps us overall uh, continue making the show uh, something that's of uh, high quality and trying to increase the quality as we go. Uh, so with all that said, I will introduce my co-host, Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? Uh, pretty good. Excited to be recording this episode again. For the second time, we'll try this. <laughs> it's uh, a little weird recording in the middle of the week and everything, but... Uh... Yeah, it's very. Yeah, we kind of had to find strange, that free time to get it done. Yeah, very strange setup we've got here. We we attempted this podcast. We attempted to record the show over the weekend, but if you saw our posts, uh, you realize that that didn't happen. So we're going to try it again. The first one, you know, had some gremlins uh, in the recording process, but uh, we will try and get this done in a way that's actually shareable this time. I think we should dive right into this one. I think this one. Well, I know because we already tried to record it. Will be a longer one, uh, so we should uh, we should get started. Yeah, let's get let's get at it. All right. So before we dive into the main topic of today's story, we kind of have to cover a a slightly more general topic. Throughout the episode, we're going to be talking about whaleback steamers. Whaleback steamers, something I did not really know about uh, until I did the research for the episode. Yeah, it's pretty niche. It's um, I actually only thought they were in the Great Lakes, to be honest, until kind of reading through the show notes here. Mm-hmm, just you wait. <laughs> uh, so if we're talking about whaleback steamers, there's one big character that we absolutely must talk about to start things out. Uh, and that is a man named Alexander McDougall. So as his name might imply, Alexander McDougall was born in Scotland uh, in 1845. Uh, at age 10, he and his family emigrated to Ontario, Canada. Uh, so as a young man, so this is during the 1860s, uh, McDougall took jobs on Great Lakes ships, uh, and he got to experience firsthand this great, awesome, and terrifying power that the Great Lakes possess. Uh, right. and, and he saw a lot about what they could do to ships, what they could do to the crew aboard those ships. And he started kind of playing around, experimenting with ideas on how to mitigate some of those risk factors, again, both to the ship and to the crew. So he played around with some different ship designs, things that would be more resistant to strong winds and the high waves that you see on the Great Lakes. So obviously, if you want to design a ship that satisfies those, those requirements, a key factor is designing something with a very, very low profile in the water. Right. But in addition to that, obviously, you, you want to make something that's low. But we're talking about the Great Lakes. We're talking about commerce and industry. We need to still be able to carry lots of stuff on these. An equal factor in designing these ships is preserving and maximizing cargo capacity. 
So this leads him eventually to the design that his name is still associated with in maritime history, the whaleback. So if you look at pictures of whaleback ships, I, had, I, I don't think I had ever seen a ship like this before I started researching. You'll notice that they look something like a cross between a submarine and a traditional steamship. Mm-hmm. And this is especially true of the majority of them that are designed purely for cargo. Right. Um, they've got these, you know, totally curved hulls. Uh, there's minimal structure on deck. Uh, it looks very, very similar to a submarine. It really does look like a surface submarine. This design basically is designed to ride high in the water with the hull fully exposed when it's empty and sink progressively lower when it takes on cargo. Not my thing. I wouldn't want to be on a ship that's, you know, it's just going to sink a little bit. I promise. Uh, so when fully loaded, you can see relatively little of the ship above the water line. Um, so in the process of this episode, I saw several pictures of these ships kind of next to more standard steamships. And you can barely see these things in the water when they're fully loaded and under sail. Very, very similar to a submarine. Yeah, it's kind of counterintuitive in a way that, you know, you want to put the ship further and further in the water. But by doing that, you cut through the waves a lot better and, you know, you ride a lot smoother. Mm -hmm. But it still has to be a little off-putting to watch water just wash across the deck of your ship. Right. It's normally not supposed to do that. (laughs) Uh, So as we just talked about, so the purpose here is to minimize exposure to the wind and the waves. Basically, allowing the ship to continue unhindered doesn't have to cut its speed under heavy weather. Mm-hmm. And it can, you know, theoretically make up time where other ships would be losing it during this type of weather. Their odd little snub nose design earned them the disparaging nickname of pig boats from <laughs> other sailors. They do look quite strange. But that design would change in some of the later iterations of the ships. They kind of looked a little bit more like a standard freighter you would see with the, with the more pointed traditional bow. Mm-hmm. So as you mentioned, these are mostly associated with the Great Lakes. Uh, most whaleback ships that were ever built were built explicitly for the Great Lakes, though there was a small handful that saw use outside of this region. So during their use on the lakes, they developed a really solid reputation for safety, uh, you know, among the people who served on these ships. So quoting from an article here about the whaleback James B. Colgate, quote, sailors found these ships to be practically impervious to the waves and violent winds that rake the Great Lakes during autumn gales. Pretty high praise. Impervious is a is, is the kind of word you want to use about the ship that you're sailing on. Yeah, nothing ever happens bad when you describe a ship as impervious. Nothing, bad, nothing bad will happen to this vessel. <laughs> so the first whaleback, however, to operate outside the Great Lakes was the Charles W. Wetmore. It's a good um, name for a ship. Yeah, I mean, it's going to get more wet if it's sinking mostly in the water. It's very true. So a quote here. Another project resulted in sending the whaleback steamer Charles W. Wetmore across the Atlantic to Liverpool with a cargo of wheat. Her design was severely criticized by the British for its lack of cargo handling apparatus, such as masts and booms, and of trunks above deck for better trimming of bulk cargoes. Uh, and that comes from the National Museum of the Great Lakes. I'm just picturing getting like heckled by a bunch of British like dock workers as you pull into port. What's all this then? <laughs> uh, those features that uh, that they talked about lacking, the things that they were expecting to have on these cargo ships, those would be added later, kind of like we talked about with the, the bow design. These things did change over time as they kind of assessed the needs of the vessels. Mm-hmm. So another noteworthy journey of the Wetmore was from Wilmington, Delaware, down around South America through the Straits of Magellan and back up the coast to Washington State in the Pacific Northwest of the United that States. Is- it's quite the trip. That is a long, long journey. 
She had a very interesting cargo on this voyage. Uh, she was carrying shipyard machinery and steel for construction of another whaleback. <laughs> it's just weird to think of like a ship carrying the stuff to make another ship. I don't know. It's, it's strange. It's it, it almost has like a sci-fi esque feel to it. It's like a like an Ian Banks culture novel of like a self-replicating vessel. <laughs> um, it's just going to spit out a shipyard to build another of itself. Right. Uh, so that's the idea here. So McDougal, Alexander McDougal that we talked about at the beginning, he he's basically the guy with these ships. All of these ships are his brainchild, essentially. No one else is really building them, from what I could see uh, in, in my research. So he was setting up a new shipyard in the recently established city of Everett, Washington. So at the time, this city had just been founded with the idea of making this a big bustling city. I believe I read somewhere they wanted to make it the Pittsburgh of the West. Wow, that is uh, not the same praise nowadays. <laughs> Again, like depending there. on your perspective of Pittsburgh, that's either a great thing or not. Um, <laughs> it doesn't sound as great probably now as it did then. No. Um, I, I like Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a cool is a cool city, for sure. We've lived there. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I don't think it's the praise that he maybe was thinking it was. One is enough, I would say. Yeah, um, we only need one Pittsburgh. Right. So that cargo we talked about that she was carrying to uh, to Everett, Washington, this would soon become the next main character in our story, the SS City of Everett. just want to note that it's usually not good to be the main character of our story. No, this show is kind of like Twitter. You, you don't want to be the main character <laughs> yeah, you don't for, the, be for the, the day. Character. It's not a good thing. <laughs> so a little bit of background here on this vessel we'll be talking about today. So she was launched on October 24th of 1894 from the aforementioned Everett shipyards. This was a massive news event in the in the local area and, and kind of all up the West Coast. This was a really big deal. The LA Times had a reporter there uh, reported that 10,000 people attended. Pretty crazy that like the LA Times would actually send a reporter to go cover this. Yeah, it's, it's not like the days like like it is now where someone could take a video on their cell phone and like send it in or whatever. Like mm-hmm. you're sending a real reporter to go cover this and then probably like telegraph the information back to you. So like it was a pretty significant event. Yeah, and like the 1890s where I don't I don't really know what was going on in journalism at this time, but I I have to think the LA Times doesn't have like a huge surplus of people they can just send out wherever. Uh, so this right. this probably, you know, took up a good amount of their manpower. Right. So this launch was a really big deal. However, or possibly because it was such a big deal, the launch was extremely rushed. Uh, and it was essentially done just for the spectacle to keep spirits up during what was a pretty bad financial crisis going on in the mid-1890s. The ship did not have an engine when it was launched. <laughs> didn't have any quarters for the crew. It didn't have a bridge, nor did it even have a wheel to steer with. Uh, so they literally just launched like a Hulk, a Hulk into the water and said, like, ship. Yes, exactly. The ship is floating. It works. See, <laughs> it's doing its most basic job, and that is that it floats. Businesses in the town of Everett were ordered to close by 3 p.m. so that everyone could watch the launch. The governor was there, the governor of Oregon. He, he was present for this. So a lot of people are here. West Coast High Society. <laughs> Some technicals on the ship. It was 365 feet long, or 105 meters, with a beam of 42 feet, or 13 meters, and a carrying capacity of 4,350 tons. At the time of its construction, it was the largest ship in the Pacific Northwest, with a price tag of about $300,000. That's a, that's a pretty expensive ship 
for the time. Yeah, and even though we talked about this on the first attempt at recording, I still have not converted that into modern money. <laughs> I just I don't know what that would be. A lot. It's a lot of money. <laughs> We're just going to um, go with that. It's, it's ex- a lot. It's an expensive ship. Engines were made in the Frontier Ironworks in Detroit and shipped by rail to the construction site. So on the show, we tend to really mainly focus our episodes on a ship's final days, hours, final minutes in some cases. That's kind of the gist of the show. This show is a little bit different in that we're going to focus a little bit more on kind of the the rest of the ship's lifetime. And we'll get to how it ends, well, at the end. So it had a pretty eventful career overall. And by eventful, I mean positive and negative. Uh, (laughs) So her initial role was, you know, a pretty standard, boring role, you know, carrying coal up and down the West Coast, you know, an an important job, but a pretty, you know, routine, standard one. Uh, She did actually carry grain to famine victims in India in 1897. And on the return journey, you know, instead of coming back across the Pacific, she went the other way and became the first U.S. steamship to pass through the Suez Canal and also the first one to circumnavigate the globe. Interesting. That's like a really deep, like, trivia question right there. Mm-hmm. And unlike the Ever Given, she did not get stuck. Yeah, look at that. It did something yeah, better than a modern ship. We'll always, always have that up on the Ever Given. <laughs> um, so she's doing this. She's, you know, doing these jobs. You know, this is a very cosmopolitan vessel. It's been around the world in lots of different ports. And this brings us to one of her stops along the way. On September 8th, 1900. It's not good when you give an exact date. Never. The city of Everett was anchored in the port city of Galveston, Texas. Uh-oh. Why would that date be significant for Galveston, Texas? So, uh, for those who are not aware of what we're referring to right now, the city of Everett would actually be in Galveston Harbor to experience the deadliest natural disaster in American history, the Galveston Hurricane of 1900. Um, Which quite literally, like, wiped Galveston off the map. Yes, it absolutely destroyed the city of Galveston. Galveston is a bit somewhat similar to a big city like New Orleans in that it is extremely, extremely low. It is at or below sea level for for much of its area. So this hurricane hits it directly and basically wipes it off the map. Fifteen, or I'm sorry, sixteen total ships were sunk that were sitting in the harbor. However, of course, there's more to the episode. So City of Everett was salvaged, pulled back up, and put back to work. Also, just as a as a human note, that hurricane would kill somewhere between six and twelve thousand people. I think eight is kind of the standard estimate, but yeah, uh, still remains untouched in terms of natural disasters in the U.S. Yeah, that's like kind of one of those numbers that if you saw it now today, it'd be like unthinkable for the United States or any honestly any like developed nation to have a natural disaster on that scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, however, this is not the last time that the ship will have uh, issues again because it's on this show. In 1903, after being converted to an oil tanker, she was involved in an accident in Port Arthur, Texas, in which an explosion injured several of the crew and destroyed the docks of the Texas Company, which we would later know as Texaco. A lot of bad stuff happening in Texas. Not a great place to stop if you're stopping near the city of Everett. So again, she was fixed and put back to work. Uh, In 1905, she was involved in a collision with a ship near Charleston, South Carolina. Name of that ship that she collided with. The Leaf Erickson. You want to guess where this vessel was flagged from? I'm going to guess Norway. It's always the Norwegians. Seem to have another running theme that Norwegian ships seem to just run into other ships. It's those Viking genes. 
They can't help themselves. Can't turn it off. I apologize to any listeners from Norway or Scandinavia as a whole. <laughs> you have a rich cultural heritage that should not be reduced simply to the Vikings. City of Everett took only minor damage, but the Leif Erikson did sink uh, and lost two crew members. This event really highlights one of those big disadvantages of the Wellback design. They're really hard to see. Yeah. In many of our stories, visibility comes into play, fog and things like this. These things are hard to see under perfect conditions when they're fully loaded. Um, so this definitely highlights that fact. In 1909, probably her most famous escapade, she was involved in rescue efforts for the ocean liner RMS Republic, which is owned or was owned by friends of the podcast, the White Star Line. <laughs> Sponsors, actually. <laughs> We're trying to get that White Star sponsor. <laughs> so this event is famous kind of on, on multiple fronts, mainly from a technological perspective. This is famous as the first maritime rescue that was made possible by the use of radio. Um, so a radio distress call was issued and ships arrived to help with the rescue. The ship had been rammed by the Italian steamer Florida near Nantucket. All of the passengers were able to be transferred to the Florida. So in terms of human loss of life, I believe that Something like six people were killed in the initial collision. But no one like went down with them. Ex exactly. This is, this is a triumph of evacuation procedure for a ship. They're able to get everyone onto the Florida, actually, the ship that hit them. And all of the passengers are rescued. Well, I guess it's a good example of technology, like increasing safety by being able to use radios and things like that to communicate. Mm -hmm. um, so the city of Everett, which we've talked about, has this sort of... Um, very heavy industrial capability designed for carrying heavy loads and towing barges. This ship was actually very close and, and arrived on scene to help. This is kind of an ideal ship to have on hand if your vessel is sinking. However, multiple offers to aid were repeatedly refused by the captain of the Republic. There's a few different explanations for this of why he might have done this. One source had something to do with the salvage value, saying that if this other ship helps to save the ship, the ship owner is entitled to something like half of the salvage. I didn't totally understand how that process worked, but in general, a financial rationale for not accepting aid. Captain Fenlon of the city of Everett was, quote, sure that the Republic refused his assistance because no ship of the White Star Line would deign to accept help from a lowly whaleback. <laughs> Imagine letting, letting people potentially drown because you don't like the ship that like, got sent to save you. Elitism at sea. Or even the salvage thing. Like, if I'm thinking I might be going down, I'm not really worried about the salvage value of my vessel at that point. Yeah, and it, I think that also plays a factor into it also, is the fact that regardless of, of the reason why or why not, in many stories that we read, it's it's a rare captain that is, you know, really, really, really quick to uh, say, my ship is sinking. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that does happen, and it's accurate, and that saves people's lives. But in this case, you know, it could be a possibility that the, the captain thought he could save the vessel and truly thought he did not need assistance. Uh, and it also seems pretty obvious that the Florida was right there to help. So it may have just been under control. Yeah. And, you know, the, the passengers have been dealt with. So there's that factor also. I, I think if mm -hmm. the ship had still been fully loaded with passengers, he's probably going to be more willing to accept aid. Right. Um, so regardless, the Republic did sink after the city of Everett had left the scene. We have some fun stories about Captain Fenlon that I'll try to get through quickly here. Colorful character, uh, Captain Fenlon. Uh, so he had his explanation that, you know, this these posh Brits didn't want to accept help from this lowly American whaleback. There are reasons in his history for us maybe not to believe all of his stories. 
he just kind of seems like one of those, you know, old salty sea captains that probably did hundreds of really cool things, but has... But also th- likes to tell a good story yeah, with, like a, you know, a beer or something. Appreciates a good tall tale. So if you look at the Wikipedia page for the city of Everett, one of the first uh, facts that you'll see is this uh, that I'll read to you uh, here. It involves the Spanish-American War of 1898. So you'll see this on a couple different websites. So during the Spanish-American War of 1898, the entirely unarmed whaleback sailed into the harbor of the Spanish city of Malaga, seeking fresh water. The terrified citizens of Malaga immediately surrendered to the American vessel. It's a pretty funny story. Yeah. So this is a story associated with Captain Fenlon. There are some issues with the story, though. One of them being that Malaga never surrendered to anyone during the Spanish-American War. (laughs) That simply never happened. If you know about the Spanish-American War, it was fought basically in overseas possessions, not on the Spanish mainland. Right. There's no dispatches, news reports, letters, firsthand accounts, anything from anyone to indicate that this happened or anything close to this happened. The city of Everett spent the Spanish-American War carrying cargo up and down the east coast of the USA and then worked as a collier between Boston and Newport News. There's not a lot of time in there to get over to Malaga yeah. uh, and enforce its surrender. Another big issue with the story that Captain Fenlon told is that Captain Fenlon wasn't the captain of City of Everett during the Spanish-American War. So if that's maybe maybe the final nail in the coffin of the story. Good for him, though, for not letting the facts of the matter, like, get in the way of a good story. Yeah, I mean, if you could get get a a free drink at a bar for a good story, sure, go for it. Well, especially back then when there's not, like, a real way to fact check. Yeah, who's going to check? So it appears to be either entirely a fabrication of Fenlon's or the author of a book called Captain Thomas Fenlon, Master Mariner. The author of that was Garland Rourke. That came out in 1958. It's a fictionalized account of his life. I feel like that's a genre that has kind of been looked over. Not enough fictionalized young adult sea captain novels. No, like uh, let's bring that back. Somebody out there get going on that. (laughs) The great American young adult sea captain novel. Um, let's get John Green on that or someone. He could probably write a good novel about that. So after all of these things, uh, including not capturing the city of Malaga in Spain. Oh, and just uh, a final summary there. So you'll see that on the Wikipedia. You'll see that on some websites. It's absolutely not true. It's absolutely 100% false. Did not happen. Fun story. Didn't happen. (laughs) Uh, City of Everett went about its business for the next years of its career, mainly towing barges across the Atlantic. It was bought in 1922 by a New York-based sugar company to make cargo runs between Cuba and the U.S., which is a weird thing to talk about now, mm-hmm. the idea of, of cargo runs between Cuba and the U.S. That is weird to think about. Someday. It's in this <laughs> capacity that we'll see the city of Everett in her final act. City of Everett had been under her new ownership for a little under a year, on October 11th, 1923. She was sailing from Santiago de Cuba to New Orleans with a load of molasses. Big old hold full of molasses. (laughs) Somewhere here, the ship seems to have encountered problems either early this morning or possibly the previous night. But at 7.30 a.m. on the 11th, the ship broadcasted a message saying, Am lowering boats. Will sink soon. Latitude 24 degrees north. Longitude 86 degrees west. Um, After about another 25 minutes, another message went out via radio. Going down stern first. One more SOS call was issued before total radio silence. When rescue ships arrived on scene, I believe about a half an hour later, there was no sign of the ship, no lifeboats, no sign that anything had happened in this area where the call came from. 
They were not able to locate any of the crew alive or otherwise. And the ship has essentially never been seen again. Uh, the wreck was never located. I think, I think it's interesting that they like talk about lowering boats and stuff like that. So clearly they made an attempt to evacuate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, it at least somewhat indicates that they had some time to, you know, at least get off these minimal messages and an attempt to evacuate. And we'll kind of talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes here. So as I mentioned, you know, that the wreck to this day has never been located. So it, it kind of leaves us with a bit of a mystery as to what exactly happened. Or in, in one of my sources, it did mention that a you know, heavy weather was in the area. Some of them really didn't mention that at all. We can assume, obviously, probably nothing would have happened to it if weather weren't an issue. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a fair assumption to make. Yeah, I was a little surprised that there was nothing in the SOS message mm-hmm. about weather. About, you know, like heavy seas or anything. You see that in a lot of them. You saw that with the Milwaukee and stuff like that. Like, even if they're dashing off a quick message, they're saying, like, how horrible the seas are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is a bit interesting. And we'll talk a little bit about the more of the technical details of the design of these whalebacks here. So when we ask the question that we always ask on the show of why did the ship sink? Why mm-hmm. did City of Everett not complete this final voyage? We have no records to examine, and there's really no significant detail communicated in those messages, with the exception of the fact that it's sinking stern first. There are various reasons that that could be happening, so that doesn't really give us a ton. So it's obviously it's difficult to ascertain exactly what happened to City of Everett. However, if we look at some other stories, uh, some other reports of whalebacks that went down, if we look at some of the criticisms of their overall design from earlier and later incidents, that can give us a little bit of insight. So one issue with these ships was the way that their cargo hatches functioned. Mm-hmm. So each individual hatch on these ships, each one is bolted on with about 100 stud bolts. This required hours of work for the whole crew, whenever the hatches needed to be opened or closed, whether taking these bolts off or putting them on. Something that was noted in the sources is that when this came up, you know, when they entered port, when they're exiting port, shifts and whether you were on or off duty absolutely did not matter. Everyone was doing this, and it still took hours to complete this task. Hmm. A very, very tedious task. (laughs) That's, um, I think it's really interesting because that's like something you hear about even for a long time, theories with like the Ed and Fitzgerald where the hatch covers weren't properly secured. And so, I mean, it's a known issue, but this sounds even worse than like a typical steamer design. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if we know one thing about the way people work, if you have a hundred bolts, you're going to start thinking, well, if I only secure <laughs> 80, I could save some time and probably, it's probably going to be fine. Yeah. Probably not a big deal. Like um, I've done it every other time, but if it comes up to be, you know, if it's a hundred times and this is the hundredth time, like, mm-hmm. You know, maybe this is not the right time to be doing that. Yeah, for sure. I could see myself in that position being like, eh, what's the difference really between 80 and 100? What's the difference between 80 and 60, really? I mean, more than half. And at that point, yeah, you're like, oh, it's about half an hour of work. <laughs> yeah. That's the difference. Like, let's get this stuff done. Yeah. And so that, that brings up the, you know, the next detail here is shipping. Like in many of the stories we've talked about, it's, it's a game of time. You know, the faster you can get this done, the faster you can load up again and, and start making more money. You know, however, the benefits of these ships, their speed through the water, even under heavy conditions, you turn right back around and lose that when you're in port. Quote, the time the ship saved by slipping through water was lost during loading. Uh, you have this super tedious cargo process, uh, and basically it kind of comes out as a wash with the time that you've saved. And all you're doing is really exhausting your crew. Because, you know, some of these guys are probably coming off of long shifts, and 
then you got to go do the hatch covers. And like you said, it's not like it was optional. Like mm-hmm. You had to get out there and do it. One source from the, the time who had served on these mentioned that it was very, very easy to find work on a whaleback if you, if you wanted or needed it. Cause Which no, is interesting because they had such a reputation for safety. You'd think people would have wanted to work on them. Right. It, it definitely highlights the fact that this is a job that people really don't want to do just because it's, right. it's very physically demanding and very tedious. From that same source, actually, uh, this is Captain Merwin Stone Thompson, who had been aboard the Wellback John Erickson. There's a lawnmower going in the background. I don't know if it's going to come through in the recording. <laughs> I swear they mowed the lawn yesterday. I don't know why they're doing it again. Anyway, uh, John Erickson, he wrote in his... Or, I'm sorry, Merwin Stone Thompson, who had served on the John Erickson, wrote in his memoir, The stud bolts were stored at each end of the ship. Shortly after leaving port on one trip, I was off watch, working on these bolts at the end of the number three hatch, when a deckhand appeared with two small buckets of bolts, one in each hand. When about opposite me, with the ship rolling slightly, he slipped and fell. One of the buckets went overboard, and he was on his way, when I fortunately could pull him back from the rounding topside of the ship. So we have this very scary uh, situation where you have this, this crewman slipping and falling. Not only does he lose all of these precious bolts over the side of the boat, he almost loses himself. And it highlights one of the issues with the design of the ship. They're really dangerous to walk on. Yeah, I mean, you're walking on a deck that may be getting, you know, washed with spray. It's wet, it's slippery, it's cold, and then you got to go do a bunch of manual labor. Like, you're kind of... You're setting up a pretty dangerous scenario. Mm-hmm. There's that issue. There's a safety issue. You read all these stories about people just slipping over the side. Also with cargo. You know, at times cargo spills, it's dropped, whatever it may be. On a ship like this, you have an immediate total loss because it's just going to go straight over the side. There's no, there's no saving it. Um, that, right. that was another thing mentioned here. Oh, so back to the hatch coverings. So they had all these bolts. So these hatch coverings were designed to be moved entirely by hand rather than by machine or whatnot. Uh, so these cargo hatches themselves, they had to be pretty limited in size. They had to be small enough that a, a person or maybe two people could lift them and move them. So this means, obviously, the, the openings have to be quite small. So because of the small openings, they were very frequently damaged by the clamshell buckets that were used for loading and unloading cargo. So you have them sort of barely just fitting into these and sort of banging and clanging off the sides of these, causing them to dent and warp and whatnot. As we know from this show, as we've seen, or just kind of from basic common sense, a bent or otherwise damaged hatch that's supposed to be watertight probably won't be anymore. Uh, yeah, and like it's one of those things, I know a couple of engineering podcasts I listen to, they kind of always say, water finds a way. Like mm-hmm. if there's a way for water to get in, it will get in. That's that's not good in this scenario. Right, and as we've talked about uh, in with, with some vessels... Uh, you know, having having a hatch that's not totally fully secured, you know, whether it's a, a cargo hatch or uh, any sort of vent or things like that on the side of the ship, it's typically not that big of a deal, you know, unless mm-hmm. you're in very, very uh, rough seas and the water is, you know, getting up to that spot and, and getting in, you know, or if the ship has a very serious list in the water and the water is getting in that way. The problem with these leaking or open hatches on a whaleback is that the whole ship is already almost at the waterline. Right. It doesn't take much to put one of these fully underwater. And if those hatches yeah. are not totally, perfectly secured, this thing is going to fill up very, very fast. Yeah, I feel like you are at the point of losing buoyancy really quick. Like, you, you're going to go from not having a problem to you've got a major problem. 
a lot quicker than you would on a standard vessel. Yeah, I imagine it kind of like holding like a like an empty Coke bottle or something underwater and then tipping it so that it goes under the water and how quickly mm-hmm. it fills up. That's kind of what I imagine well, with these. Yeah, and I mean, it's sort of like when we compare it to a submarine. I mean, there's a reason that there's most submarine disasters are 100% fatal. Right. Like, it's just over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like, this, this design kind of seems inherently like if something small goes wrong, it will very quickly become a big deal. So some saying that, that that probably was a contributing factor also to the city of Everett. Other whalebacks had gone down because of issues like this. And this is likely what happened to city of Everett. Some further support for this idea. Let's go back to that other whaleback I mentioned earlier, the James B. Colgate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Colgate sank in Lake Erie, south of Long Point, Ontario, in October of 1916. So this is about seven years before the Everett. Colgate was struggling through heavy weather when the captain climbed onto the bridge. Quote, Captain was horrified to see the hatch covers separating from the deck, even as his ship buried her bow beneath the water's surface. So the captain here is noticing in all this weather that these hatches are not totally secured. Um, and that's probably why his ship is going down. That captain, uh, Captain Grashaw, I believe was his name, he would eventually be the lone survivor of the Colgates, uh, hence how we are left with his memoir. Uh, so the fact that these hatches were coming open suggests that they obviously weren't properly closed, whether by human negligence and not sim- simply not securing them, or this could have been a physical, you know, mechanical issue of, you know, this hatch doesn't close or this hatch doesn't close all the way. And maybe it was a known issue. Right. Uh, so in theory, a similar thing could have sunk any of these whaleback style vessels. Yeah, it definitely seems like that would be a, a logical cause to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk a little bit of aftermath. Uh, and let's talk about whalebacks as a whole after this. So in January 1924, this is about three months after the sinking, a bottle washed up on shore near Miami with a note inside reading, quote, S.S. Everett, this is the last of us. To dear friends who find this, goodbye forever and ever. That seems way too perfect. It's a very, like, it is a very well put together desperation in a bottle note. Yeah, um, and the fact that it's found near Miami, like, it's just too perfect. The location's too perfect. The wording's like what you would think would get put on there if you were making a novel or a movie out of it. It could be real, but I don't know. I, I know it's a thing that people... You know, had to deal with back then was hoaxes like that. Um, people just wanted to see it get printed in a newspaper. I'm skeptical by nature, so I don't I don't put a lot of stock in that. There was no PlayStation back then, so people would just make fake letters in a bottle <laughs> and throw them on the beach. Kind of, I guess, right? People had more free time. Yeah, I don't know. I don't put a lot of stock in that, personally. Yeah, and I mean, I, I never saw anything saying that it had been authenticated or that anything about it indicated that it was a true piece of this. Also, it isn't I don't believe it was signed by anyone. You would mm-hmm. have to think that that would have been a factor in it. So anyway, I mean, even oh. even the wording of just SS Everett. I mean, if you were a crew member, you probably would have said City of Everett, right? Maybe. I I know that like that name, the, the short version did get thrown around. I saw that in some sources, but yeah, I think it's odd that it's not signed. First of all, yeah, it's it's just weird that like you would abbreviate the ship name, but then take the time to compose like this yeah. wordy message. Yeah, and I, one reason that it's not signed, maybe, is that it was written by someone who didn't know any of the names of people on board. Right. So, there's that. There was that little thing. To this day, like I said, the ship's wreckage has never been located. 2010, divers did think that they had located it just because of the shape of the hull that they had found and the kind of general vicinity that they were diving in. 
That wreckage turned out to be a different steamer, the Munisla, after they discovered the manufacturer's plaque on the engine showing a serial number that didn't match the Everett. Yeah, I was actually reading that earlier. I was looking at the citations on the Wikipedia page that referenced the the news articles saying that they had discovered it. Mm-hmm. Because I think on the the Wikipedia page actually has a section called "Discovery of the Wreck," and mm-hmm. it never it never says that it wasn't that it wasn't the city of Everett. And both articles that it cites basically it's just them saying we think it's the city of Everett. But yeah, there's like no definitive proof. There was that, and then there was an article, I believe in 2011, that was published uh, in the Everett newspaper in Washington, saying that they had found it, and that I believe turned out to be this ship. This is the same story. Whereas my my source, I I relied mostly on from from this current year, actually, from the Snohomish County Cultural Association, I believe it was, was quite clear that the ship has never been identified or recovered. Well, if anybody wants to clean up the city of Everett Wikipedia, we've already found two major errors. So Mm -hmm. again, like we say, we like to use Wikipedia for the sources, not for the content. Well, again, and, and back to our story about the surrender of Malaga, if you look at the sources that are cited for that, you know, if they're cited on the webpage, the name that they usually cite is Rourke. And if that name sounds familiar, that's because that was the author of that children's book I talked about. Um, <laughs> not, not exactly an academic source. Not exactly source. an academic source. Right. So yeah, be careful, kids. <laughs> Trust but verify. I believe a famous person once said that. <laughs> so let's talk about whalebacks. Whalebacks, never yeah. the most popular design. Kind of a pet project almost of McDougal. They kind of fell out of favor as cargo loading and unloading methods changed. Even McDougal, the biggest proponent of these ships, even he admitted later uh, in his life that whalebacks were not something that could really continue. They just couldn't meet the demands of the evolving shipping industry. Right. So he kind of accepted that. And this is not really one of those stories where you have this you know, tortured genius who has this idea and it's a failure. He was involved in all kinds of shipbuilding and other stuff. Lots of things involving steel. So he did fine. Whalebacks kind of became a relic, but he he did fine. He was not, you know, out on the street because his grand idea failed. You're right. I mean, he was kind of one of the, like, almost like a secondary Gilded Age character, but in the same sphere of influences like uh, Andrew Carnegie or J.P. Morgan, those mm-hmm. kind of Rockefeller's a big part of the story. Didn't really talk too much about it here, uh, but if you if you read the source that we'll link to on historylink.org. It goes in a lot more to the business side of things and mm-hmm. his interactions with Rockefeller. Uh, and you really get to see how, how big of a deal this guy was. He, he was a big, big name in American you know, business culture uh, at the time. And in you know, society as a whole, he was a really big deal, Alexander McDougall. So the last whale back was built in 1896, actually named the Frank D. Rockefeller. It saw service until 1969. Pretty impressive. Those those Great Lakes vessels, they last a long time. Yeah, it, uh, it sailed for quite a long time. Uh, had multiple name changes and also multiple incidents. I think it sank three different times. I, we didn't really talk about it, but like I guess one good thing about this design is that it's basically just a big barge, so it's really easy to refloat. That's something that didn't really come up, but a lot of these vessels, if you if you read the history of them, I think there were only 44 of them ever built. So you could kind of read the whole history of whalebacks in not that much time. A lot of them have multiple sinkings on their record. They'll sink, they'll get dragged back up and fixed and put back to work. Uh, so yeah, I mean, relatively simple design. Like you said, it's just kind of a big a big steel case with a, with a steering wheel on it. So yeah, pretty easy to salvage, it seems like. Relatively easy to salvage. Right. So the notes online, or the, the sources online, they, they say that the 
that final whale back, the Frank D. Rockefeller, uh, which is now called the Meteor. Some sources uh, list it as the only whaleback still afloat. I think you have a bone to pick with that. I have firsthand experience with that vessel from living in Superior, Wisconsin. It is, in fact, not afloat. It is in a park right next to the water, but it is intact. And it's actually a really cool thing to go visit. I don't know. It's like I think it's only like five or ten bucks to go and walk it and go down inside it and everything. It's really cool. It's definitely something if you're up in the Duluth Superior area, I would definitely say check it out. There's also a, a mini golf course at the ship, so you can get get 18 holes in and then then go walk the ship. Very nice. So not afloat, but like float adjacent. Float adjacent. Yes, it is right next maybe, to the uh, the harbor. Maybe it can float. I would not want to test it. (laughs) But um, no, it's definitely something that if uh, you're interested in Great Lakes shipping and you're in that area, it's a really cool way to see like a really unique piece of maritime history. Got to find something to do in Superior. Not a lot to do. I went to the Perkins a lot in Superior. (laughs) Studied a lot because there wasn't much to do. But uh, yeah, mostly the Perkins. That's where we went for our wild and crazy Friday nights in college. All right. (laughs) Well, let's see, to wrap things up here. So uh, just some of my final thoughts here. So I liked researching this story. I, this is probably the show we've done where I had to learn the most about actual ships and like their design and stuff like that. But to me, the most interesting part was still the people involved. Mm-hmm. The story of Alexander McDougall, to me, him, his idea, the whalebacks, the city of Everett, all of these are just a really fascinating representation of the Gilded Age in the United right. States. You have the story of an immigrant coming to America as a child, He takes this difficult, dangerous job on these Great Lakes vessels. This inspires him to pursue a dream. And ultimately, he becomes a pretty successful businessman. Because again, he was involved in more than just these whaleback ships that didn't really take off. Just to put this on a a smaller perspective, I guess, during the Civil War in in the 1860s, when he he starts his work on the lakes, he's serving as just a regular crew member on these Great Lakes Uh vessels. By the time World War I comes around, he owns the company who's building ships <laughs> to use in World War I. And he's basically a household name. It's a very, very cool success story. Like like the kind of success story you would learn about in like elementary school when you learn about, you know, Carnegie and Rockefeller and things like that. Well, it seems like his story has a lot of parallels to Carnegie in the sense that like they're both from Scotland. They both come, you know, at a young age and do, they start from the bottom. Like they legitimately do start at the bottom of a job and work their way up and, mm-hmm. you know. Through some, you know, smart and hard work, they end up being titans in their industry. Exactly. And even, and, and very, I mean, I don't know the, how much interaction this dude had, but clearly Carnegie had a lot to do with Great Lake shipping because of all the steel and iron and everything that was being shipped. So I have no doubt that those two interacted quite a bit. I know it, I, I know it came up and I, I don't know if they worked together. So that would make me think that they were competitors but still, yeah, it's it's interesting to see this story of, like you said, this is kind of a quintessential, it's almost like a painfully cliched Gilded Age success story. Right. Uh, but this one, this one happened. He's an interesting person. This is an interesting concept. These are really interesting ships. I really enjoyed researching this episode. Yeah, no, this was a fun one to talk about. I'm kind of glad you did it. It's not one that I thought you would do because it's kind of outside of what you normally look at. You kind of look at some of the things more internationally. It's kind of fun to have you do a Great Lakes one or a Great Lakes adjacent one. We had Scotland and Canada in this one, technically international. <laughs> and India and Great and Britain. It, yeah. yeah. We went a few places. <laughs> yeah. 
But no, it, this was a fun one. I'm glad we did it. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>